Welcome to the Corey Mila podcast, exploring stories and ideas about conflict, peace, theology, and art. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Corey Mila podcast. With me today is Oliver Jeffers. Oliver is a visual artist and storyteller, and he's created 19 picture books. He's also exhibited artwork in galleries all around the world, Dublin, New York, London, Vienna. So Oliver, you're very welcome to the Corimila podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you. <laughs> Oliver, I'm curious as you look back at your childhood, are there any experiences or friendships in your childhood that prepared you for the work you're doing now? Uh, oh. Friendships or relationships. Uh, I think probably growing up with three brothers uh, has become particularly informative. Um, and you know, and I do think there's. I was thinking about this uh, recently, actually, just for the for the an essay that I'm making for this book about uh, moments of my life that have altered my thinking and. I think in some ways there's not a, a particular person, but it's a particular relationship with a group of people that's uh, had a, a big impact. Um, we kind of joke that we grew up bilingual um, because growing up in a, in a, in a Catholic, working-class Catholic family, middle-to-working-class Catholic family, in a pocketed area, walking around the roads that we would have grown up with, you had to be able to pass the test. Um, and that test could come from two very different directions. Uh, and you had to know where you were in order to know which test that you had to pass. And so I think I grew up with the idea that I could um, hold two opposing ideas in my head at the same time from an early age. Uh, and I think that's that's probably that, that sense of duality as a relationship that, uh, that, that informed me. Um, somebody did point out that um, my, uh, I, I clearly grew up as an only child because a lot of my picture books for children are uh, very much about uh, empty space and, and friendship and loneliness. Um, and I think they get surprised when they learn that I grew up with, yeah. I was one of four boys. <clears throat> and so in thinking back on that, perhaps there was a degree of want in, uh, in the, the, the manifestation of those worlds where actually what I really created was not friends, but a bit of solitude. <laughs> <laughs> that was wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah, um, a bit of quiet where I could hear myself think. Um, I, but the, I, saw, the, I think the relationship with my brothers is probably the one, uh, hmm. uh, and my parents, but that, that familiar relationships are the ones that I think most framed me. Yeah. I saw once that um, at an international event where artist wasn't an option for your profession, your occupation was described as observer and translator. Um, yes. I'm, I'm interested now that you talk about being able to translate yourself into term in terms of a sectarian divide where somebody would be asking, you know, are you British or Irish or Catholic or Protestant? Yeah. Um, does yeah. translator work for you as a, as a bigger thing, uh, not, not just a survival mode back then? Um, well, I think it's actually it's, that's the, the the way in which I choose to describe myself now in some ways. Um, the having gone through our college and um, the degree in which I got a qualification in uh, is visual communication. And primarily that is uh, done by people who then go on to become photographers or designers or typographers or illustrators. Um, but I had one foot in this bookmaking design illustration world and one foot in this very much fine art painting um, sort of conceptual art making world. And that old, you know, that old chestnut of uh, 
coming up with a description for yourself, coming up with a title for yourself is always tricky. Um, because whenever I was graduating from college and um, decided that I am interested in bookmaking, but I'm also interested in fine art making, uh, maybe I'll just keep doing both until somebody tells me otherwise. And nobody <laughs> ever did tell me otherwise. I just sort of kept going. But so for a long period of my time, I was very hung up on what do I call myself? How do I define myself? By which discipline, by which boundary do I put myself in? And I didn't like the idea of illustrator because when I was trying to make it in the fine art world, that term was used as a, a, a negatory thing. It was, you know, that was kind of a, a, a put down. Oh, you're just an illustrator. An illustrator was sort of seen as this, you know, like the lowly stepchild in the fine art world. Um, you, uh, you, were sort of seen as lesser than. So I didn't like that term, but then also to just call myself a fine artist betrayed the the very real situation in which I had stumbled into that people enjoyed my books and they enjoyed the simplicity and the design of that. So how I define myself always was problematic um, or too many things to put into a mouthful. Mm-hmm. And so it was COP26 when I went along and it hadn't really occurred to anybody that artists should have a place at that table. Mm-hmm. That's why there was no box for artists to tick. And, the, you know, I think it was a, a young girl from, from Ghana who I asked how many languages she spoke and she said seven, um, which made me feel vastly inferior, <laughs> um, considering I struggle with the one and only language that I mostly <laughs> communicate in, which is English. Um, but... Uh, she just goes, uh, I've just sort of put you down as an reserver and translator. Will that do? And, and I remember thinking, will that do? You're That's thinking. perfect. Because, yeah. you know, the, a big part of the work that I do has always been I can I can sense how I feel and I've tried to communicate how I feel so that others feel the same thing. And I recognize that my dad has always been a very good tour guide and he is very good at taking something complicated and it, uh, that, that's very complicated and, and distilling it and conveying it in a very palatable way. And I always likened that. So it was like he can translate. He can sort of take this, you know, this sort of nuanced, uh, almost academic concept and explain it to different ways to different people in a way that would work best for them. And I think I've picked up on some of that. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing is trying to say something as simply as possible. And one way to look at that is that I'm translating. I'm observing and I'm seeing the patterns and I'm taking my time to, uh, to, to really quantify that. And then I'm trying to translate that. Yeah. We'll come on to that in a while because I am very interested in talking to you about communication, but I'd like to go back a little bit. I know that you grew up in Belfast and you mentioned already that you were in a pocketed area, you know, where as from mm-hmm. a Catholic working class family in an area that was, um, primarily British identifying Protestants, um, and you attended one of the first integrated schools. Was that your choice or the choice of your parents or a shared choice? My input into it was not necessarily a decision that I made that was a sort of a rational, political, religious decision. It's something my parents felt very strongly about. They did not like the, uh, I suppose, the the aggressive separation that went hand in hand with education here. Um, my dad was very interested in this idea of breaking down these these boundaries, um, these borders in between uh, very close neighborhoods. So they, they were interested in it. And I think I probably tipped their their hand a little bit by uh, by failing my 11 plus. Okay. Um, and so I didn't. I, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those ones where it's my dad is a teacher and he has yeah. always he never uh, put pressure on us for the 11 plus and and he was not disappointed when we failed um and and he's 
spoken to me quite articulately since then but going you know the if you think about education it's what we're really doing is uh, most of Western education is just teaching people how to pass an exam, but that doesn't prove real intelligence. He's always said that real intelligence in another person is curiosity and imagination. Sure. And they don't really come out and test like that. So he was never worried about us. He was, he was never sort of pushed us in that direction. Um, but the, 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 the fact that I failed sort of made that decision easier. Um, but really it was something that, that they were very interested in is breaking out of this, this sort of re- recurring cycle. Yeah. And the integrated sector in Northern Ireland at the moment, I suppose, has near about 10 percent of young people who'd go to a school where the school has a yeah. demographics where they will have maybe 45 percent Catholic Irish identifying students and 45 percent British Protestant yeah. identifying students and then 10 percent other or depending as to yeah. where the location is. And yeah. 11 plus, just for anyone yeah. who isn't it's, familiar, it, is a selection yeah. examination you do at 11 as to if you can go to a, a school. So does it, did it benefit you um, from a political point of view? And as well as education. Oh, completely, absolutely, massively. Um, you know, for, for considering most people, when I say most people, like ninety-nine percent of kids would not meet somebody of the opposing religion until they were at university or uh, full-time adult employment age. And by that stage, eighteen years of your life, you've had the opportunity to build up all sorts of um, poorly informed stories, anecdotes, uh, you know, uh, uh, generalizations about what the, the the other sort were. And by going and mixing with, with kids, it didn't occur to us at the age of 11 to ask each other what religion we were, because we weren't genuinely that interested. And then to find out when you got to third year, fourth year, somebody who you've been playing football with or sitting beside for years, like, oh, wait a minute, you're Protestant? Oh, right, okay. It just... It 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 uh, demystified the whole thing sure. and made it very palpably obvious just that we are we are all uh, uh, the only difference between us was the flags that we were flying. Yeah. Really, I was going to ask, like, was religion in that context about you know if you went to a church service over the weekend, or was it more about Britishness or Irishness? Where where did it land for you? For, well, the this is an interesting um, way to to kind of look at the differentiation. It, the this in having to explain to to people outside of Northern Ireland this religious struggle, it never really was about religion. That was a telltale for how you could indicate where where somebody where their 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 background lay. But it was definitely Britishness and Irishness, yeah. and one manifestation of that is, of course, what the the way in which you. Uh, where you went to uh, church on the weekend. And, you know, when I was growing up, I think almost everybody went to church one one way, form or the other. That, of course, is no longer the case. It's, it's become a much more agnostic world out there or an even atheist world out there. Um, but the our, uh, our family was somewhat religious. Um, my mother probably more so than my father. My mother's family very much so. And I think once we turned 16, my, my dad was like, okay, you guys don't have to go anymore if you can, if you want, but I'm no longer making you go. I'm curious yeah. about that kind of era in your life. When did you move towards art? Well, I think I have always been interested in art. Uh, um, when I when it, when it occurred to me really that it was it had power or it had leverage is when um, I was recognised as being talented enough to get out of you know doing geography so I could go and help decorate the set of a school play things like that um, and then when I did an actual uh, transactional value whenever in the, the secondary school that I went to when some of the tougher kids were asking me to decorate their skateboards or their school bags um, and you know in turn that led to uh, shall we say mild protection um, yeah. 
it's just I realized that there was there was value to this. But I think it wasn't un, un, until the, you know that, that at that point where you're starting to seriously look at and of course in the UK education system you start to close off and specialize at a very early age. Um, and I'm almost the exception that proves the rule that nobody knows what they want to do when they're that young. Um, when they're 15, you know you can't predict what kind of an adult you're going to be. But it did work for me because once I figured out that making art was a, a genuine job, I knew that was the direction that I wanted to go. Right. And so that's probably about 15 or 16. Oh, yeah. And where did you go to art college? I went to art college in Belfast. It's now called the, the Belfast School of Art. Hmm. And uh, so you did. You do the one year of foundation, which is a little bit of everything. And then you, uh, you specialize for, for three years uh, in one one discipline. You know, I, I'd like to talk to you about your picture books, Oliver. I, as I was thinking about them, I do see that they they address both the delicious and the difficult. And I'd like to talk to you about both. You know, I was looking at the one where there's a boy who has a kite stuck in a tree. And as he tries to get the kite out of the tree, he just throws all kinds of everything. A lorry, a ladder, a whale and firemen. Um, and there's another one where there's a boy who eats books. You know, could you talk about um, your your interest, first of all, in the delicious? Because, I mean, there's difficult things as well that you address. And sometimes you address them both yeah. at the same time. But there's kind of yeah. there's the absurd and the delightful and the funny that you yeah. um, that you do and those appeal to people of all ages they do yeah and looking back i think i had maybe a better tap than i realized on that sort of uh, observation and, and translatability where you know the stuck is that the, the story of where the, the boy tries to solve the problem of getting his kite stuck in a tree by throwing ever increasingly larger objects in it and there's a luscious visual to that but of course how often is that the way in which we actually go about trying to problem solve yeah. uh, in a, in a not very effective way. So there's a, a ludicrousness there that lends itself to a good story because it's so close to reality. Yeah. Um, and that, that story and it's that story itself uh, was one of the trickier ones to resolve. And when I talk to the students and to young children about storytelling, I say, you know, that all good stories have three things and they're so simple that people often forget them. And that is a beginning, a middle and an end. And that applies to films, books, uh, novels, picture books, essays, uh, poetry, even narrative poetry. And if something leaves you unsatisfied or unfulfilled, or you feel like something didn't work, they hadn't figured out one of those three aspects. Maybe there was a good beginning and, and a middle, but the end left you cold, or maybe there was no end, or maybe it jumped from the beginning to the end without a middle. It's very easy to look at it like that. And so for Stuck, uh, it was, I had a great beginning, somebody gets their kite stuck in a tree, and then a great middle, they tried to throw every object under the sun which also got stuck but i couldn't figure out the ending and here's why because i kept trying to uh the, for me the natural resolution was well obviously everything has to come down again and so you know but waiting until autumn and then everything fell just it didn't feel like a crescendo enough so i sat on it and it mulled in the back of my mind in the back of my sketchbooks for a long time and then i was watching my nephew's play one time where the ending clicked in and this has become such a valuable lesson going forward that they were playing, they were really intricately involved with this game. And then something more interesting came along and they <laughs> quite literally just dropped everything and moved on to the next thing. And it was there in, that I learned that things don't have to just end. You just move on to something else. And that was the ending of the book then, that he just forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving everything there. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's so interesting that when you spoke earlier on about, you know, visual communication and finding a way where feeling is communicated, where, where whatever you're feeling is being picked up by the people who are mm-hmm. reading the book or observing the piece of art. Do you think that feeling is a language that you're dealing in mostly? I mean, it's obviously a visual medium that you work in as well as linguistic, you know, because there's always words in your in your in your books. Yeah. But so much of yours seems to be about feeling. There's deep um, poignancy and there's deep sympathy in the characters. The faces you see simple, but they they carry so much emotion. What is it about feeling for you? You know, I haven't quite thought about it like that before, but I think you're absolutely right, Podrick, that it is feeling that I'm that I'm dealing with. It's not about moral life lessons or anything like that. Those things click into place because we there's a fine line between satisfaction and predictability. And for a story to be satisfying, it has to be to a degree predictable and the way people feel and want to feel is to a degree predictable. Mm-hmm. But uh, somebody once said that uh, 100% effective communication is impossible because nobody will ever be able to see inside your head. So as soon as you say words or as soon as you draw a picture, even in your body language, it's open to interpretation and interference or static or whatever it might be. And so the trying to get to the, the purest form of having somebody feel what I feel, I think is absolutely the, the business in which I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I, yeah, feeling is what the books are about and it's what what so much of it uh, of, of the work that i do is about yeah and you deal with difficult feelings too you know in a little paper caper there's uh, an entire story of blame um and that blame it feels like you're falling down a well i, I mean i felt that in me and by addressing difficult topics conflict blame yeah. in that book the great paper caper i say almost nothing the lion's share of the work is done through the pictures and you know we we learn how to we learn how to read a room we learn how to read body language before we learn how to read a word or how to count or um and it's that that innate ability within us to sense things that are that are not quite uh spelled out and almost in fact if you don't say it you leave that interpretation for somebody else and you picked up you said earlier there about you know the the facial expressions and the the way in which i do characters are so uh so so simple and i think that is why they're so effective because the more detail it just adds to that possible interference that mm-hmm. possible static and by being vague you allow room for people to apply themselves into the story and as empathetic as we all want to be we're all a little selfish too and so it feels like the work is about you and is about your world you are a little more emotionally invested in it sure i mean it's a fine line you manage to hold between communicating feeling but not controlling feeling that is a complicated thing to achieve oliver well i think because i'm the only thing i can control is is what i feel um and i'm not trying to tell anybody else how they should feel all i'm trying to do is show them how i feel or how I felt when I was making this book or this work. How and so you... there, there, I think I think within that, uh, kids, actually, there's a uh, kind of an unspoken respect where I think kids can pick out the thinly veiled books that are trying to teach them something or trying mm. to tell them what to do, yeah. as opposed to I'm just presenting a world and leaving them the crumbs that they can put it together or not. Have your relationship with your own feelings been something that you've had to work on? 
I mean, because there is a profound kind of emotional sophistication where you can communicate loneliness or isolation or sadness or blame or delight um, in, yeah. in the art you make. What, what's your relationship with feelings been like? Did it take you a while? I think it probably did. That was a lit bloomer and then all of a sudden. And, um, you know, I think I'm a, I'm a rare Irishman where I'm actually willing to be vulnerable, <laughs> willing to be uh, uh, articulate vulnerability. And that, that is not that is not a common trait among I was going to say Irish man, but even Irish woman, I'm, I'm discovering. Um, but the, I think, for me, it did. I recognize that if I am going to feel something, that's going to make the art all the more important, which I think encouraged a vulnerability. Um, but also, I think at the right moment in my life, when a few things clicked into gear, that cleared the clutter for me. Um, when I was early in our college. It was a matter of I was making art because I enjoyed the validation and because I enjoyed people liking it and telling me that they liked it. And uh, my my foundation year tutor, a, a gentleman called Dennis McBride, who was a, who was a great painter, um, and he was a, a respected painter back then. Um, he retired not long after I was there, and he just he he, he sort of said to me, he was like, you know. Who are you making this art for, Oliver? It's like you're like a little child always needing to be told that you're good. And it did make me think, and I was I was mulling on that. And um, uh, and a year or two after, uh, my mother had MS for for as long as I remember, and then she she died right in the last year of my art college. And all of the things that I had been worried about, all of the people who I thought I cared about, um, whose opinions I validated or sought, it suddenly occurred to me that they didn't matter, that none of it mattered, that I had. It, just been valuing the wrong things, measuring success by the wrong metric. And suddenly in the clarity of that moment, recognizing that nobody really knows anything, everybody's just bumbling along. And I could suddenly see quite clearly that everybody is vulnerable, that everybody is just stumbling along and that everybody is seeking validation and no one really truly knows what they're doing, it just gave me this absolute freedom. And, it, and my friend once said it was almost like a superpower where I have kind of, kind of tapped underneath the well of uh, of how people want to feel. Mm. And I think a lot of it stems from those moments where it was like, I can't tell people what to feel, but I can recognize in myself what I care about and how that can be translated to other people. You're listening to the Coromiela Podcast and I'm Padraig Tuma. With me today is artist and storyteller Oliver Jeffers. Oliver, you mentioned the death of your mother and I'm curious about how that changed you as an artist or did it just deepen what was already there? I think it, it uh, partly deepened what was there, um, but I think in, in the, the way in which I just sort of, I, I just mentioned, I think it, it massively changed because I recognised that if I am making this so because I want other people, if I'm doing anything because I want other people to approve it, it's never going to be very important art. And the only thing art I've always I've, I've thought since then is one of the only endeavors where the more selfish you are, the more generous you are. Because if, if you're making art because you want to help other people or you you know you 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 want to make something that you think that they want, it just ends up being pandering somewhat and. Uh, disingenuous. Whereas if you truly get lost on your own spiral of not necessarily trying to make yourself feel good, but just if you get lost on a, a, a spiral of your own willingness to be vulnerable, 
Mm. and to explore the rabbit holes of, well, what happens if, mm. and you don't really care what people think. I think that is what leads to, to art that actually is so much more in touch with other people. So yeah. by forgetting them, that's what lets them in. Yeah. Um, like, I know that people of all ages engage with your work, but I wonder, do you experience some resistance from people who observe your work, particularly your children's books, and think, oh, children can't cope with complex emotions, and so therefore the the, the complex parts of the feelings that you speak about and depict in your art, do you ever get resistance from that? I mean, it's, it's clear that children do have very sophisticated emotional lives and respond very well to, to art that takes their emotional lives seriously, but do you oh, ever I would say, resistance yeah, from adults? I, I, um, yes, occasionally I, I do get. Uh, I don't. I don't check in too often to sort of see what people are saying or, or trying to break it apart to, to see how it works. But occasionally things do get through to me or comments after events at, at literary festivals, and and it is quite comical sometimes how the way it goes, where it's so often it's parents' projection onto children. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, uh, um, you know, whenever I was. Uh, people say that The Heart in the Bottle is a very difficult book because it's about a young girl who loses this this paternal figure in her life. I never specify whether it's a father or a grandfather. And adults have a very hard time about that because they, they kind of uh, use it as a reflection on their own existence and their own fears. Whereas children intuitively get it, maybe in a way more so than adults do, but it, they don't see it as sad. Yeah. And I've often dwelt on that, that they just see it as the the sort of the the slow progression and order and pattern of things and again with uh, this has happened a few times where people have asked me um there's a book called the fate of fausto where this this man who in trying to prove that he owns the ocean drowns and uh, some parents have written going what am i supposed to tell my child happens to fausto at the end and the answer is as i always said to them was like it's easy you just tell him he died <laughs> you know, it's like you. I don't know why you're avoiding this conversation because, mm. as far as I know, nobody's ever lived forever. <laughs> There's a big question that happens as I listen to you about what the purpose of art is. And, you know, I hear that some people might want to go, so this piece of art is about trying to convince people about blame. This piece of art is about trying to convince people about friendship. This piece of art is trying to convince people about what happens after grief. But I can hear you resisting that, just kind of saying you're you're creating modes of communication of feeling and then you trust yeah. people to feel what they feel. Yeah. And in a broader yeah. sense, how do you think about the purpose of art and how do you push back against anybody who has a, an idea about what art's purpose is? Well, the, even you saying that, you know, this piece is about this, this piece is about this. I remember studying Sylvia Plath poetry in school and the teacher saying, well, this is what she meant with this um, and, you know, breaking it down to the to the letter practically. And I remember my friend Michael and I going, did she really, or is she just making this all up? And the answer is probably somewhere in between both. And uh, I've, people have sent me essays that, that have been written about my work for, you know, for doctorates and whatnot, where people have been saying, clearly this is what this book means when this thing happens. And and part of me is like, no, I didn't have that intention at all. But <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's not about that because it's there's a, a, a joke in The Simpsons when Marge, takes up painting and uh, she's painting and the tutor comes over her shoulder and sort of jokingly says, stop, it belongs to the ages now. And there's truth in that because it's I'm not going to be there when people are reading the book. I can't hold their hand and say, no, 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 this is what it means. Or I'm not going to be there when people are looking at a, a painting of mine in a, in a museum and going, um, you know, this is what it means. It's like, it's I've, I've brought it uh, into the world and I brought it halfway there. And then the completion of it is up is, is up to whatever happens in the head of whoever looking at it. So art can mean, the specific pieces of art can mean different things to different people. It's like that, you know, the 
uh, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it doesn't make a noise, there is an answer to this in quantum physics because I work with a quantum physicist on a project for a while. And the answer is no, because you need an ear for those reverberations to be translated as noise. And so therefore, art needs a set of eyes, a set of ears, uh, and uh, a processing device to put them together in their own head for it to be a piece of art, for it to be completed. That's the last step is not what has happened with me, but is what happens in the head of somebody else. Oliver, you mentioned being in conferences with physicists and with scientists, and I know that your Our Place in Space project was a way of, um, well, it was, was art that looked at different points of view by looking at um, what was happening on Earth from the point of view of the moon or further afield. Um, mm. you, you depict um, conflict in a way there where you're stepping back from it to ask what the plot line of conflict is and where it's leading to and what, what it's reflecting back to us. And if if conflict was art, you know, would it be good art or boring art or predictable art? <laughs> what is it, first of all, about conflict? And then we'll get on to talking about point of view and perspective in a while. But first of all, about conflict, what is it about that that interests you so much? Because like in the while that you and I have known each other over the last couple of years, it's often been conflict that we've spoken about yeah you know in, in the context in which you just asked because i think it's i look at conflict has become an interesting way for me to look at perspective and vice versa but why conflict i think is is, is interesting is because i'm fascinating about what uh what a waste of energy and what a distraction it is for these big brains of ours you know the only consciousness known in the universe and this is what we spend our uh our intellect and our endeavors doing is is beating each other up and it's just it as uh, advanced and as enlightened as we are this is still the most interesting story that we tell is is fascinating to me because i just i can't work out why and and i think a big part of the the work that i'm doing um that i've been doing for the last few years and we'll probably continue to do is 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 trying to answer that question um and the like why is it that that we feel the need to be more important than somebody else. Why is it? And even kind of taking from uh, from the Northern Irish perspective, growing up here, the the reality that too often having an enemy is the biggest form of somebody's identity. Whereas it's not, you know, it's not like I don't know who I am, but I know who I'm not. And why is it that we need an other so we know who we are? Um, are we not interesting enough without that? Or are we still in uh, in a stage of intellectual evolution where we're trying to get past that? I don't know. Um, but for for the the conflict is became a way to look at perspective because when I moved to New York in two thousand and seven, and then would explain to very well educated American people and British expats there that oh no, actually Northern Ireland is a separate country from the Republic of Ireland, and I ended up having to draw that same map dozens and dozens of time with the two islands and the, the the two lines in Great Britain and the one line across Ireland explaining the difference between the United Kingdom, the British Isles and Great Britain and just sort of realising that there we are killing each other on an island and to be either British or Irish and once you left there nobody really cared. You are you're not shy of giving out public opinion about matters to do with politics or whatever's being voted on in a referendum. I would only do it after consideration. I wouldn't just spot out the first thing. Oh, I would yeah. really think about how I felt about it. And I don't know if you ever noticed, I try to generally do it in a way in which there is e either a hopeful perspective or a call to action rather than just adding to the noise. 
How did you learn that? My father. <laughs> really? Yeah. I say a bit more about that. It's like, what is the what is the point in complaining if you're not going to do something about it? It's better to offer a solution than than uh, point out the problem. Mm-hmm. And and uh, in, in just in sort of the recognizing, and my wife as well was sort of point out. Was like, you know, you a lot of people, you you kind of represent the voice of a lot of people. Just be careful what you say. Try to not say anything that's 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 too negative, too aggressive, uh, too isolating of a particular group or anything. But just you know, if everything that I'm about is about um, sort of unity and simplicity and equality, try and speak in a way that that reflects that. After making the book, here we are for. For my son, when he showed up on Earth, is you know, here's he, what's it like to be a brand new human walking around. I'm gonna have to teach you everything. And when I uh, was looking at that, I started researching what astronauts have said about outer space, yeah. or sorry, about looking at planet Earth from outer space. And the way in which they were talking about seeing Earth from the distance of the moon, I recognized was not dissimilar to the way in which I'd been speaking about Northern Ireland from the distance of New York. Mm-hmm. And so that. Trying to explain conflict with the, the perspective of distance and time became really interesting. And then whenever I went to Tennessee to see a total eclipse of the sun, uh, and that brief moment, that two minutes where the moon finally becomes visible because it's a big black circle right in front of the sun, and you're the intelligent spatial recognition part of your brain, you know, when you look out a window, you can tell, oh, that car is so far away from that tree, even though they're in the same line. You, you you can work out spatial awareness and that same thing happened, but on a cosmological level where the object one I was looking at was a quarter of a million miles away. And then the second object that I could see behind it was 450 million miles away. It just, my knees dropped with the scale of it all. And I was like, how do I translate that? How can I do that? again and have other people see this and sense this but rather than having it just be a scientific model what's a way to do it so we place humanity at the center of this and how we look at ourselves and you know the only this is just how how vast the distances are between all the other things that are floating out there it's called space for a reason because it mostly is space and if we get far away and we look back at ourselves is is it does it become obvious that what how we're using our energy is not the best use of our time and so that's that's how this uh, 591 million to one scale model of Earth's place in our solar system was born. It's called Our Place in Space. And uh, where the sun is about uh, three meters in diameter, Earth is smaller than a ping pong ball mm-hmm. and uh, about 500 meters away. And uh, it takes 12 miles to get from the sun to Pluto, which would be the size of a match head. <laughs> the more I listen to you today, Oliver, the more I keep on thinking about how one of the kind of transformational moments that seems to enliven you as a person as well as in your art is something you said earlier on moments in life that alter thinking like I'm already thinking about Mm. that eclipse you just talked about there and Mm. looking at the measurements of you know between planets and moons etc but then I'm also thinking about what you said about the death of your mother and the way you speak about becoming a parent yourself and also about being in Brooklyn and having to explain you know British-Irish conflict each of these seem to be moments where your thinking was altered some Thing mm. happened um, that moved you towards some point of view, some perspective that was that was well. I don't know what it was. Is it creativity? Is it imagination? Is it insignificance? What what is it that you would think you're moved towards in those moments of altered thinking? 
I think in those moments of altered thinking, I think what I recognize is that nothing is absolutely sure or certain that everything that we know is basically a story that we told ourselves and we're taking somebody else's word for it. And in those moments, I think I recognize, I tap into a, a much deeper current or rhythm that transcends or undercuts language or narrative or storytelling. And, it, and it's, it's to do with that feeling. It's that feeling which we haven't quite articulated yet or don't quite have rules for yet, but that doesn't mean that we won't at some point in the future. And that perhaps my work on Earth is to be a conduit towards taking a step towards that clarity. Mm. That clarity of feeling. That clarity of feeling, yeah. Tapping into the the the, the movements, the patterns, the rhythms of uh, of natural life, of that which you know really can't be contested. There's a theme of home through a lot of your books too, Oliver. Would you say that home is an emotional experience for you as you think about it? Is it is the sense of belonging that you're talking yeah. about? It really is a sense of belonging and, and uh it's a it's a it's a sense of feeling to to mm-hmm. continue even with that. The the house in which we grew up um was sold and um we were all potentially gonna get quite emotional about it, but my father pointed out that that's only bricks and mortar. That feeling and those memories, those stories live inside your head and you can take them anywhere. And what and where and who is home for you these days? What and where and who is home for me, I suppose, <laughs> is uh, um, is my family. Uh, and it is that my extended family, my father, still my brothers, my wife, my children. Um, and in a way, also New York. I, I think I feel very much at home when I'm close to my to I have two studios one here in, in Northern Ireland and one in, in Brooklyn and it's that ability to be able to to make and comfortably make knowing where everything is that I where I needed to be hmm. is there any projects that you're working on at the moment that you can talk about I've spent the last four years thinking about writing rewriting editing and pa- then painting over the last two years a book that is hard to describe. Uh, the publishers were still not entirely sure where to put it in the bookshop or what to call it, but it is, it's uh, a book probably primarily for adults, not to say it's not for kids, um, about the patterns that I recognize in the story, the human story of where we came from and where we might yet go. And it's called Begin Again. Hmm. It's a, I suppose it's even a, a non-fiction visual poetic thread of the stories that govern humanity. Mm-hmm. Huge themes and held together in extraordinary language as well as um, visuals, as I've seen it. Yeah, you know, it is. It's like the, the complicated, lofty themes. And what's the best way to go about them, I think, is to just keep thinking about them, saying them, showing them to a point where you can distill them to enough simplicity that they can't really be disagreed with. So there is a poem at the end of the book, Begin Again, that I think sums the whole thing up. And it's whenever I've, I've traveled a lot. I've traveled to most of the states in the USA. I've traveled to, to uh, countless other countries. And I always talk to people. It's amazing the sorts of people that come along to, to book events. And um, when I te- I've noticed that when you ask people what they want, especially in you know in a, in a kind of a, a, a context of current affairs, people tend to answer what they don't want. And when I started really then scratching at the surface uh, and trying to get to the, the the heart of what people actually do want, um, I, I made a kind of a, a startling 
revelation. And I wrote a poem about it that is at the end of the book, Begin Again, and it's called The Heart of It. It says, um, when you dig deep enough by asking the why behind the why enough times, you come to a truth at the heart of it, that all people, no matter who they are, where they're from, or what they believe, all want the same simple things, community, purpose, health, and dignity. The why behind the why. The why behind the why. Just keep asking the next question. Oliver Jeffers, artist, communicator, translator, and uh, friend. Thank you very much for coming on the Corrymeadow podcast. Thank you, Podrick. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Corrymeadow podcast is created in partnership between Corrymeadow and Fanfan. It's produced by Emily Rowling with mixing, editing, and theme music by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios and presented by me, Podrick Otuma. The podcast is generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Community Relations Council Northern Ireland and the Irish Government's Reconciliation Fund. Thanks to them and thanks to Coramila's friends and supporters and thanks to you for listening. I wonder, is there something in your life um, that you've changed your mind about? Oysters. <laughs> <laughs> that was very quick. Do you, have, do you have a sentence about which direction you changed your mind about oysters? Yes, I I, I was like, the, you know, to, to quote Oscar Wilde, was a brave man who first tried an oyster. I was like, what is that about? And then being in Cancale in France and, and watching those old ladies shuck them and the way in which people sort of just relish them with gusto and then the smell and just, it was, it was a feeling, just it was like it felt right in the moment and I tried it and it was delicious. <laughs> it was a context thing. Hmm. Are there books or poems or films or any work of art really that you've turned to again and again throughout your life? I um, there's there's one album that I keep tend to go back to, and I think it's because it happened at a trans uh, sort of a transcendental or, or you know a, a moment of transit in my life where uh, I was on the move and in between people. You know, it was like one an old version of myself was was uh, uh, out of service, and I was in. Uh, basically renovation become the new version of me and the the album was uh, Astro Weeks by Van Morrison mm. and I do put it on periodically just when I recognize I'm in a moment of of transition 